0: Today, we're going to have a conversation with uh, Dr. Randall Balmer. He's going to share on the history and future of evangelicalism at this hour. We're going to break around 6 or 6.15. Book of de Beppos is on its way. Everybody's invited to stay for dinner, please. And then at 7 o'clock, we're going to have a conversation around evangelicalism and politics. I got sent this video uh, of him giving a lecture about the emergence of the religious right several years ago. I, uh, Eric actually sent it to me. And it was one of those moments where you go, oh my goodness, I had no idea about this history that I had come up under. In fact, if you are interested, all of that is still online, the true origins of the religious right. And I just remember that being a moment, a turning point of, there's some history, just modern history. Now, those of you who know, like we do a lot of 2,000-year-old history, but I've been very, very poor on the 100-year history. And so when I ran into Dr. Balmer's work, I started referencing his, his writings, his articles, and his books as, help me understand how did we get here? What really went on during 1925 Scopes trial, the rise of the religious right, conservative Christians in politics, and all this stuff, because I didn't really know much about that and have a frame of reference for it, and so his work has been extremely informative, and and let me just say this, extremely inspiring. In the midst of some of the things that have been going on, I was also looking for a prophetic voice, somebody that could also not just deconstruct what was happening in our world, but to also provide a vision and a hope for what could possibly be. And Dr. Balmer was that voice for me. So it's just been An incredible journey for me to learn from him from afar. Extremely honored to have you here. Now, before we officially welcome you, actually, would you mind coming up? We have some um, rapid-fire interview questions. Would you mind, and then we'll formally welcome him. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your family? My family. Um, I have
1: a wife who's back home in Vermont and looking out over the Connecticut River Valley from our front porch or from our deck. I uh, have uh, three children, all of whom live in the New York City area. Uh, all of them are around age 30. And uh, I come from a family of uh, four <clears throat> younger brothers, so five boys okay. altogether. Uh, my father was a minister for 40 years in the Evangelical Free Church of America, and uh, he passed away in 1997, and my mother is still alive in Des Moines, Iowa. Favorite food and
0: or restaurant? Uh, Mexican Worst job you've ever had? Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: when I was in college, actually, I uh, I, I worked just very briefly uh, in a factory, and uh, that was awful. So I, I have I have I have great deal of sympathy for people who have to. Have to regiment their days according to the, the clock and yep. time clock and so forth. Uh, that, that's tough. And another summer, I, I worked on a loading dock f- uh, with the Teamsters, and that was a lot, that was hard uh, work as well. You've done
0: so. some hard labor. Oh, I yeah. Have, yeah. Okay, most important question Apple or Android? Uh, Apple. Apple, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're in Silicon Valley, I had to ask. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Ballmer. Thank you, Chet. Thank you, Kevin. I'm, de- I'm delighted to be here. I,
1: this is a, a wonderful, exciting place. I can feel the energy, and I hope not to dampen it too too badly by talking about history. Uh, but uh, that that was my assignment today, to talk about the history and the future of evangelicalism. I'm not sure how much I'll get to the future in this first part, but I want to talk a little bit about the history, where did it come from, uh, where do we come from, what uh, has shaped us in this movement throughout American history and even uh, before American history. And in the second part, I'm going to talk more uh, 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 focusedly on politics, so the origins of the religious right. Uh, we all know the religious right grew up in direct response to the Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court in 1973, but you will be surprised to know that that is utter fiction. It had nothing to do with abortion. The religious right has nothing to do with abortion in its early years, and I'll talk about how all of that happened as well. Uh, Do you mind if I begin with prayer? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we often forget the importance of history, but we need to remember that you chose to enter history at a particular moment, and the world has never been the same. Grant your servant, O Lord, the courage to speak your words and not merely his own, and grant your people the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I want to begin with pronunciation. Get that out of the way. Uh, One of the books that uh, Kevin flashed up there was a book called Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, and if you want to read something I've written, probably start there. what, uh, that book was uh, begun in the, in the late 1980s when some of the older folks here remember the televangelist scandals were breaking. Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, Oral Roberts declared that God had held, taken him hostage and so forth. All, all sorts of really crazy stuff in the late, late 80s. And I kind of enjoyed it and I never cared much for the televangelists myself. But I quickly became impatient with the media's portrayal of evangelicals. Media seemed to think that all evangelicals were either easily duped or the moral equivalent of Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart. And having grown up in that world, I knew different. So I devised this crazy idea. And in fact, I was not a tenured uh, professor at that time. The chair of my department said, don't do it. You'll be committing professional suicide if you do this project. And I did it anyway. And so my eyes Have seen the glory is actually a travelogue. I decided to travel all throughout the country visiting various groups of evangelicals and looking at them at the grassroots. I went to a camp meeting in Florida. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary down in Texas. I went to a Bible camp in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. I went to an Indian reservation, actually the one that's in the news right now, Standing Rock Indian Reservation in North Dakota. I spent a good bit of time there. I can talk about that, but that's going to get me out of trailing off into the raspberry bushes here. I've got to be careful about that. Um, I went to, where else, uh, a, a college program in southern Oregon, and the idea was to get a, 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 a finely textured portrait of evangelicals in America rather than the kind of monolithic, unitary movement that the media were portraying at the, at the time. I, I'll say all that to say that in the course of my travels, I tried to understand the difference in pronunciation, why some people talked about evangelicalism, and others talked about evangelicalism. I thought it was regional for a while. For a while, I thought it was, well, if you were one, you called yourself an evangelical. If you were talking about somebody else who was one, you talked about that person as an evangelical. There's no rhyme or reason. I use the term evangelical. I use that pronunciation. I will continue to do that. There's not one way that's right or wrong. So let's just dispense with that uh, as we get started. What about the term? The term evangelical actually goes back to the New Testament, which was written by the evangelists. And who are the evangelists? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the term evangelical applies most directly to the New Testament, particularly the gospels. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it signals the good news the good news of salvation, that Jesus has come to save a sinful humanity. So that's the real root meaning of the term evangelical. What happens is that in the 16th century, a uh, young Augustinian friar by the name of Martin Luther did, in his own words, rediscover the gospel, which, by which he meant he was trying to rescue the faith from the corruptions, as he understood it, of medieval Roman Catholicism. We are saved by grace through faith, not by good works. Now, Paul had talked about that years ago, centuries ago. But Luther rediscovered that and used that as a way to really uh, kick off the Protestant Reformation, which, by the way, will be celebrating the 500th anniversary next year, a year from this month, of uh, Luther and his Reformation. So the term evangelical came to be applied very broadly to, uh, to Protestantism. Uh, to this day, for example, if you go to, to, to Germany, the Protestant church is called the Evangelische church, the evangelical church. So that's the another meaning of the term evangelical. I argue that the term evangelical in America has taken on a particular meaning, by which I mean it has taken on a meaning by its intersection with American society, history, and culture. Now, I want to be clear about this. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the, the, the faith interacts with culture. I mean, that's part of what it means to be a faith, to have a living faith, because it's not it's not cold and dead and and desiccated. It interacts with the culture, and I'll talk about that in various ways in the next few minutes. In America, I think evangelicalism came about through the confluence of what I call the three P's: Puritanism, Presbyterianism, and Pietism. Those three religious strands, all of them Protestant, came together in an event that historians call the Great Awakening, which occurred in the 1730s and 1740s, this massive revival of religion that really convulsed the Atlantic colonies during the colonial period. It brought together diverse people, uh, that is, diverse uh, uh, um, uh, uh, itinerant preachers, evangelists, And it was remarkably successful. Uh, The catalyst for that great awakening was, depending on who you really look to, Jonathan Edwards, a great uh, preacher from Northampton, Massachusetts, but also George Whitefield, who came over from England and traveled along the Atlantic seaboard, preaching in the open air to large groups of, of people, George Whitfield had the advantage of having been trained in the London theater. So he understood the importance of dramatic pauses and using his stentorian voice and having these great dramatic flourishes. And in a culture that at that time had no dramatic tradition, no theater at all, the colonists were just kind of blown away with us. Contemporary said he could bring tears to your eyes Simply by saying Mesopotamia, <laughs> he was that effective. We should try it, Kevin, next week. Trust me, we can do that. He was very effective, and people came uh, in part because there was no other entertainment at the time. That's part of the reason. But people would come for these great open-air gatherings and have a conversion experience. So that's an example of what happened during this Great Awakening, and it brings together these three different strands who begin to cooperate in this Great Awakening. I think it's possible today to look at evangelicals and say that there are vestiges of all three of those Ps, those three strands in American evangelicalism. I think from the Puritans, we have inherited this uh, penchant for introspection. We're always looking inside to see if we are doing well enough in God's eyes, right? And then what did the Puritans do? The Puritans kept diaries. Puritans understand, understood the relationship between journey and journal. So they were always writing down about their interior spiritual life and whether or not they were good enough and, and the disciplines that they were trying to undertake to be better people. Uh, I think evangelicalism still has this. I think this this, uh, conference that that we were talking about a few minutes ago would be an example of that. You know, this is a chance for you to kind of look inside. How am I doing spiritually? How can I be better? And and, and so forth. From the Presbyterians, I think evangelicals had uh, inherited a sense of uh, the importance of doctrine or doctrinal precisionism. That is, it's important to hold the right beliefs. And Presbyterians have always been very pretty good at that. And I did, one of my books was on the Presbyterians, so I can talk about that, but I'd rather not. So let's, let's move on from Presbyterians. And the third element of this evangelicalism, the third P is pietism. Pietism was a movement that reacted against the kind of uh, cold formalism of much of religion in the 17th and 18th centuries, back in, in, uh, in the... Uh, in the the old world on the continent in England. Methodism, for example, is a pietistic movement that began to try to re-energize the Church of England because there were some people who thought that that, uh, the Church of England had become too cold and too formal. And today, you have, among evangelicals, the importance of a warm-hearted, affective piety. It's not enough merely to hold the right doctrines. You have to feel them in an affective sort of way. And so I think that's an example of how the third P also continues to to inform uh, evangelicalism. So these three Ps came together in the Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, roughly. And then what happens? We move on to the turn of the 19th century, and there's another revival that takes place that that convulses three theaters of the new nation. New England, upstate New York, and the Cumberland Valley of Kentucky. And historians call this the second great awakening. It's not a very original term, but that's what we came up with years ago. The second great awakening. And this is important for many, many reasons. First of all, you had the awakening up in New England, which actually kind of uh, emanated from Yale College or Yale Divinity School at that time. The second phase of the Second Great Awakening took place in the Cumberland Valley of Kentucky. Uh, And this was the most... uh, This is the camp meeting revival. Uh, This is the most enthusiastic of of these revivals. People came from rural areas for a week or ten days of preaching, singing... Uh, and, and, and religious conversions, although critics at the time claimed that more souls were conceived than converted at these uh, <laughs> camp meetings. And nevertheless, uh, it, was a, a, it was a time of religious renewal. A lot of uh, uh, ec- ecstasy, uh, people slain in the spirit. There are all sorts of contemporary accounts of people who are taken over bodily by the Holy Spirit, and contorting in, in jerks or laughing or whatever it might be. Uh, so that was the most spectacular phase of the Second Great Awakening. And the third g- phase of the Great, uh, Second Great Awakening took place up in upstate New York in an area that was just opened for development by the construction of the Erie Canal, which com- was completed in 1825. This is the area where jo- uh, Charles Grandison Finney was quite active. And this is the moment in evangelical history when evangelicals really begin to demonstrate their social conscience. I'm gonna say a little bit more about this because Kevin asked me to. (laughs) When you look at evangelical activism throughout the long lens of American history, you go back to the antebellum period, the period before the Civil War, and evangelicals were very, very intent on reforming society according to the norms of godliness. So they were active, for example, in the abolitionist movement, working toward the abolition of slavery. They were active in prison reform. The whole idea of a penitentiary, ever think about where that word comes from? Penitent. The idea was not merely to segregate a a criminal from the rest of society, but to make him penitent so that he, at some point, and she, could constructively rejoin society at a, at a later date. Evangelicals were also interested in peace movements, staying away from war. I have even found evidence that evangelicals were interested in gun control. Imagine that, gun control in the early part of the 19th century. They were interested in eradicating dueling, and I'm gonna come back to that in a moment. If, you don't, if I don't, somebody remind me by waving your hand at me so I can get back to that. And finally, evangelicals were interested in equality for women. <laughs> Even voting rights. Which in the nineteenth century was considered a fairly radical idea. Evangelicals were very much behind those reforms in society. Finally, evangelicals and Charles Finney, in, in particular. Uh, let me say a word about Finney, before I, I have to watch the time here. But uh, let me say a word about Finney. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney was uh, a remarkable man. I, be, I, arguably, the most important religious figure in all of American history. He was. Uh, a, an attorney, actually, a lawyer, and he had a conversion experience. In fact, at the day after he was, had his conversion experience, he was scheduled to appear in court, and he sent a message to his client saying, sorry, I'm out of the law business. I can no longer argue your case. God has called me to argue his case, and so I'm off to, um, you know, eventually upstate New York, where he gets involved in uh, the, uh, the Second Great Awakening up in Rochester, New York. But Charles Grandison Finney is important because he picks up on what's going on in American history and American culture at that time. Remember that only a generation earlier, Americans had taken their political destiny into their own hands by the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. Finney comes along a few years later and says, not only can you control your political destiny you can control your religious destiny as well. What do you mean by that? Um, On the way over, Stacy and I were talking about the Puritans. The Puritans were part of Calvinism or the Reformed tradition as it's called. And the distinctive characteristic of Calvinist theology is that there's nothing any of us can do to earn our own salvation. God has decided from the beginning of the world who was part of the elect and who was not. And there's nothing we could do. We could do all the good works in the world and we couldn't change our status in the eyes of God. Now, I can get into this more if you want, later if you want me to, but that, just take it at that, that, uh, for, for now. Puritans believed that only the elect, those God had elected for salvation, were redeemed. It's a very deterministic system because if there's not, nothing you can do to to change your spiritual or religious status in Calvinism. Finney comes along and says, not only can you control your religious destiny, uh, your political destiny, destiny, you can control your religious destiny as well. All you have to do is choose to be saved. You can initiate the salvation process. And in fact, he instituted a number of things called the new measures that were designed to Increase and encourage revival and conversion. Um, For example, allowing women to testify in meetings, which was a radical idea at that time. Uh, Advertising meetings, religious meetings. Having protracted meetings one night after another for a long period of time. Something he called the anxious bench or the mourner's bench up in front of the auditorium where people who were were struggling with the fate of their own souls could come and decide whether or not to be, be saved or converted. This is a radical turnaround from the Puritan notion of election because it says you, the individual, have the power to choose your own religious or spiritual destiny. But my point in saying this is that Finney was, was capitalizing on the mood of the culture at that moment. A new nation... Uh, Americans like to think that we control our own destiny, right, whether we do or not. I'm not going to get into that at this moment. Uh, this, this idea that you controlled your religious destiny was very attractive. And Finney's idea of theology, Finney's uh, Arminianism, it's called. I, don't, I won't get into the name for right now, but it really took hold. And Americans began to respond to this. There's a corollary to that as well. Something called postmillennialism. And this is the deepest I'm going to get into theology. I'm not a theologian, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. What is postmillennialism? Revelation 20. There's a mention of the millennium, 1,000 years of peace and righteousness that will come on the earth at some point. The question has always been for those who want to try to understand the book of Revelation and, and to interpret it literally when? When is this one thousand years going to take place? And the the, the 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 two main camps are postmillennial and premillennial, and it means this: if you are a postmillennialist, you believe that Jesus will return to Earth after this one thousand years of peace and righteousness on Earth. Okay. If you are a premillennialist. Jesus is going to come back to Earth before the millennium, this 1,000 years. Now you're saying, so what? Think about it for a minute. The so what is huge. If you are a premillennialist, how are you going to approach the larger society, the larger culture? Anyone know? Well, let me continue the narrative. We'll see how this works. Charles Finney and evangelicals in the early part of the 19th century were post-millennialists. They believed not only that they could choose their own salvation, they also believed that they could reform society according to the norms of godliness by their own efforts. And this is what animates these social reform movements i was talking about so for example evangelicals looked around themselves in say 1830 1820 1840 said we're constructing this millennial kingdom a kingdom of righteousness we don't think slavery really fits in that picture so we need to eradicate slavery so this animated the abolitionist movement They looked around themselves and said, if we're constructing a millennial kingdom and we take seriously Paul's declaration that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, women deserve to be equal. If we are constructing a godly society, war is not part of the picture. Another example. In 1805, in Weehawken, New Jersey, there was a duel between the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, and the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. They had a duel, they shot at one another. Alexander Hamilton was mortally wounded and he was killed by the Vice President. And you thought Dick Cheney was the first Vice President to (laughs) shoot somebody. Happened a long time ago. (laughs) Various evangelicals, notably Lyman Beecher, said, this is barbaric, that we have dueling in this society? We're trying to construct a godly kingdom. We're trying to bring on the millennium. Dueling isn't part of this. And so he began a campaign to outlaw dueling, which eventually was successful. That's an example of how evangelicals believing that they were constructing the millennial kingdom began to reform society okay what happens to all this a couple of things happened in the 19th century first thing that happens is that the civil war comes in um, you look at the carnage of the civil war by the way how many how many americans were killed in the civil war do you know anyone, anyone know The latest scholarship suggests that it was somewhere around 800,000 Americans were killed. Uh, compare that to Vietnam, you know, which was tragic in its own way. About 58,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War. More than 800,000 Americans died in, in the Civil War. So evangelicals looked around themselves and said, wait a minute, we thought we were building this millennial kingdom. Look what's happening on the battlefields uh, in, the, in the South in particular. In addition... There was industrialization going on in American society, urbanization in American society, and you had the influx of immigrants. Now, immigration is not a new issue <laughs> in, in American life. It's, a, it's been around, around for a long, long time. But these were immigrants who did not share Protestant scruples about temperance or alcohol consumption. So what happens is that they begin to look around themselves in 1870, 1880, certainly by 1890, and they think, wait a minute, we thought we were building this millennial society so that Jesus could come back to earth. It doesn't look like Zion in the tenements of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, This is a pretty squalid place, uh, teeming with labor unrest. Things don't look better. Things look like they're getting worse. And people like Dwight Moody and others begin to rethink their understanding of the millennium. And they borrow ideas from a guy in Britain, a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby, who comes to America, begins a preaching tour. And John Nelson Darby says, you guys have it all wrong. You're not building a millennial kingdom. You've interpreted the Bible wrong. Instead, Jesus is coming back at any moment. Jesus may not Allow us to complete this session here this afternoon before He comes back. Right? Premillennial. Some of you, you you recognize this, yes, okay, you know it. A lot of maybe not the younger folks, but the, those of us who are a little bit older remember this very, very well. Uh, Jesus is coming back at any moment. Now, how is that going to affect your understanding of society and a believer's responsibility in society? Think about. Anyone want to try? Yeah, Stacey. Exactly, exactly. If Jesus is coming back at any moment, why am I worried about trying to make the world a better place? And in fact, uh, I'll, I'll try to remember the uh, anecdote about this in, in a moment here. Uh, and in fact, some people who are pre will say, we actually are looking forward to things getting worse and worse because then Jesus is going to come. Um, no, no, you, you're, you're laughing, but I, this is not, this is, this is serious. I'll, I, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you an example of this. For this book that I mentioned earlier, mine, I just seen the glory. I, in 1988, this is a long time ago, I was in Iowa for the Iowa Precinct Caucuses and then the next week I went to New Hampshire for the New Hampshire primary. And some of you remember, or at least maybe have studied it in history. One of the <laughs> one of the uh, candidates for the Republican nomination was Pat Robertson, the televangelist. And Pat Ro- and I was so I was with the Robertson people in in New Hampshire in particular. And they were telling about how, when in the early part of the campaign, uh, um, Robertson came to New Hampshire and was meeting with the group of evangelical pastors and talking about how he wanted to be the Republican nominee for president and, and uh, you know, he felt God was calling him to do that and so forth. And one of the pastors at the, end of the, at the back of the room said, but Pat, you can't run for president because if you run for president, the world is going to be a better place, which is a questionable <laughs> premise. The world is going to be a better place and you will delay the return of Jesus. That was his argument. This is a premillennial argument. So what happens is that evangelicals, as they shift from being post-millennialists, Jesus is coming after the millennium, which means we have to be busy making the world, this world a better place. To pre-millennialism around the turn of the twentieth century, they begin to say, "We don't want any part of anything that's going on in the society." And as Stacy says, what we want to do is simply focus on individual conversion or individual regeneration. We're not worried about social change or or the welfare of other people. So this is a massive change in evangelical understandings of the larger society. And what I will argue later on uh, in our second meeting is that this premillennialism really takes hold in the 20th century, for most of the 20th century, where evangelicals were not involved in politics or social reform in any sort of concerted way. And it wasn't until the late 1970s that they became politically mobilized and politically active. And I'll talk about exactly uh, why that was. The other thing that happens is that there are intellectual assaults on evangelical understandings of various things, particularly the Bible. What happens in the 19th century is that there's a, a particular intellectual strain coming out of German, Germany called higher criticism that applied uh, the tools of literary criticism to the Bible. And uh, for example, uh, the, the best example is the, uh, the, uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And these scholars began to notice, for example, that the term used to refer to God was different throughout these four books. There was different language used to refer to God. Whereas the text itself says that the Pentateuch or the Torah was written by whom? By Moses, right? Just one author, right? That's what the text itself says. And these scholars began to look at this and said, no, look at this, there are literary differences here. And this is the so-called JEDP theory, and I won't get into it, but it, that, that was what's coming out of that. Uh, one of the things they, they looked at, for example, was the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is the final book in the Torah. Now, what happens at the end of Deuteronomy? Sorry? Moses died. Moses died which means he's recording his own death, right? Neat trick. I mean, how did he do that? Well, you know, uh, it, these are the questions that were floating at the time. And these German higher critics began to advance various theories for this. And, and, and evangelicals said, wait a minute, uh, you, you guys are attacking the Bible. You are attacking our our ground of, of knowledge. And so what, what they do in response to this is that they... They declare the Bible inerrant in the original autographs. Uh, and, and this is a longer story than I have time to get into, but uh, the, the theologians at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1881 publish an article in the Presbyterian Review called Inspiration, in which they say, look, there may be discrepancies, there may be uh, things that are inconsistent, but the text in its original form was Utterly without error. Only one problem with that. You know what that would be. We don't have the original text, right? Right. I mean, we try, you know, the scholars try to get back to the earliest possible text. We don't don't have the originals. But they were saying, it's kind of a Platonic ideal is what they were arguing for, is that the texts were entirely without error in the original manuscripts. Now, I mean, it's a perfectly logical thing to, to, to argue against, especially against the higher critics, but it has had the effect, I think, in evangelicalism of, of, of kind of making the Bible into the, the static document rather than a dynamic document. Uh, I love the way Karl Barth talks about the Bible and the inspiration of the, of the Bible. He said, the Bible becomes the word of God. That is, as you read it with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, there's a kind of dynamism that lends a, a, a force to it. it it's, it's not merely this sort of archaeological text that you can kind of... The logic choppers come in, and, uh, and most of them tend to be Calvinists, but that's a whole other question. Uh, and they, they kind of go in and, 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 and dissect it, chop it up, and say, put it into loose little categories, and they got it all figured out. The beauty of Calvinism, by the way, is that once you accept Calvinistic presuppositions, it explains the whole world. explains everything. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It really is. I mean, you have to worry about the presuppositions, but nevertheless, it's, it, it, that, that, that's the problem. And so what happens after 1881 with the publication of this, this article, Inspiration, is that evangelicals uh, uh, retreat more and more to this inerrant text, the inerrant Bible. Uh, I went to a seminary, for example. Um, Kevin mentioned Union Theological Seminary, but my real seminary training was at, at Trinity Divinity School in outside of Deerfield, Illinois. And that was the touchstone for faith. If you do, were not an in, inerrantist, you were not truly an evangelical. You were not truly a, a believer um, in, in their in their view. But I think the the problem with that is that it, it 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 makes the text rigid rather than dynamic. And I think that's the beauty of Karl Barth's approach to it, talking about how the Bible becomes the Word of God. So let me get get a quick definition of what is an evangelical today. I I talked about the three P's and so forth, postmillennialism, premillennialism. I use three-part definition to define who is an evangelical. An evangelical is somebody who believes that the Bible is God's revelation to humanity. And as such, it should be taken seriously to the point of literal interpretation. Uh, You have a lot of people who claim to be biblical literalists. Very few people are actually biblical literalists, but they claim to be biblical literalists. Um, I think no one is really a biblical literalist, but that's a whole other conversation. On the basis of that, you have the second criterion, and this comes from the third chapter of St. John, when Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, visits Jesus by night to ask how uh, how he can enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus replied, you must be born again. Or in some translations, you must be born from above to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is where the term born again comes from. I'll talk about Jimmy Carter later on in our second session. Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, really uh, translated his born again status or his born again uh, claims into the uh, the presidency in in 1976. There's more to it than that, but that, that was a big part of it. Uh, so evangelicals believe in the importance or the centrality of a conversion experience or a born-again experience. And very often an evangelical will be able to recount the circumstances and even the date of his or her conversion. I was converted on July, or June 17th, 1982. I was in the hospital. I was about to go in for surgery. My uh, roommate talked to me about Jesus, and I invited Jesus into my heart. I became born-again at that moment. Uh, That, for evangelicals, is a a very important moment. I think what's happened in recent years is that more and more evangelicals, particularly younger uh, evangelicals, talk about this as more uh, uh, an evolutionary process. Evolution is probably not a good word to use here, but um, uh, a a gradual process rather than an instantaneous, datable experience of grace. But it's the same sort of thing. And the final criterion I use for an evangelical is someone who takes seriously the Great Commission go into the world and preach the gospel, to bring others into the faith. Now, I usually qualify that by saying that evangelicals talk about that a good bit more than they actually do it. I think that's probably fair. And over the last half century or so, they've more and more hired professionals to do it for them. That is, missionaries and uh, visitation pastors and megachurches and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, an evangelical would take very seriously the mandate of spreading the gospel and bringing others uh, into the faith. So those would be the three criteria that I use to identify an evangelical. Taking the Bible very seriously as God's revelation to humanity. Second, the conversion of a conversion, uh, the, the, the importance of a conversion or born-again experience. And thirdly, the impulse to evangelize or to bring others into the faith. Now, within that large rubric, there are a lot of differences and I can do them quickly if you want. Um, uh, for example, you have uh, Holiness People. The Holiness Movement begins primarily within Methodism in the 19th century, and it was an attempt to re-energize the Methodist Church. Uh, there were a lot of criticisms of Methodists who for becoming too upwardly mobile, too middle class, a lot of criticism about robed choirs, for example, as well as organs in Methodist churches. And the holiness people wanted simplicity and piety. Uh, you see holiness people today primarily in camp meetings. Um, and if you're interested in camp meeting, I can direct you to some wonderful camp meetings where you get this sort of pious uh, uh, lifestyle. Uh, women in particular are not uh, supposed to, to, to dress in a... In a in a fashionable way. Uh, Many holiness women, for example, never cut their hair ever in their entire lifetime. Uh, They don't wear cosmetics or jewelry. Uh, That's all part of the holiness uh, tradition. So that's one sort of subgroup within this larger umbrella of evangelicalism. A second group comes out of the holiness movement, actually. It's called Pentecostalism. I'm sure you've heard about this. Pentecostalism actually traces its history to the first day of the new century, January 1st, 1901, in Topeka, Kansas, and students there at Bethel Bible College, particularly a woman named Agnes Osman, began speaking in tongues under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is something that they uh, were taught was the evidence of the, of the uh, uh, the blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit and according to contemporary accounts, Agnes Osman spoke nothing but Chinese for three days under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I've always been a little skeptical of that, cha- that uh, claim. I'm not sure who in Topeka, Kansas, would have known what was Chinese or not, but nevertheless, that was, the, that was the claim. What happens to Pentecostalism is that it spreads out west here to California, particularly to Los Angeles, the famous Azusa Street Revival which begins on April 12th, 1906. And several days later, the earthquake in San Francisco was taken as indication that these were the last days and Jesus was coming back at any time. Uh, Azusa Street Revival was remarkable in so many ways, but in one tragic way, I think. That is, what was characteristic of the Azusa Street Revival was its inclusivity. It included African-Americans, in fact, the leader of the, group, of the movement at that time was an African-American, a man by the name of James Seymour. Women were leaders in that movement, Asians, other minorities were involved in, in the early days of Pentecostalism at the Azusa Street Mission, which is where the Azusa Street Revival took place in, in Los Angeles. I think the great tragedy of Pentecostalism in the 20th century is that, as Pentecostals began to organize themselves into denominations, they became racially stratified. Church of God in Christ, for example, Assemblies of God, which was organized in 1914, entirely white. Whereas the early years of Pentecostalism, the color line was washed away in the blood of Jesus. And that's the great tragedy of Pentecostalism, I think. Nevertheless, Pentecostals became very important in the 20th century, and that's another strain of these evangelicals. Fundamentalists would be another strain. Fundamentalists take their name from a series of pamphlets that were published between 1910 and 1915 called The Fundamentals, that were a very conservative uh, collection of essays that offered a very conservative articulation of the faith, including inerrancy, by the way, but also premillennialism, which I talked about earlier, Um, the virgin birth of of Jesus, the authenticity of miracles, the uh, historicity of the the, uh, resurrection, and so forth. Those who subscribe to the doctrines put forth in the fundamentals came to be known as fundamentalists. That's where the term comes from. We talk these days about Islamic fundamentalism, Hindu fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism, even Buddhist fundamentalism. The term comes from this series of pamphlets that appeared between 19... and 1915. Uh, Some people ask, what's the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical? Um, The the, the semi-flippant answer is that a a fundamentalist is an evangelical who's mad about something. It's not a bad definition, actually. That that is to say, it's more a matter of temperament than it is any differences in theology. It's not so much uh, doctrinal differences. It's more, uh, there's a militancy to, to fundamentalism that uh, evangelicals uh, don 't really have uh, a reaction to fundamentalism is another strain in in this uh, evangelical movement called neo evangelicalism. Uh, probably the best example of that would be Billy Graham. Billy Graham began to emerge as a national figure in uh, the middle of the of the 20th century, uh, along with uh, fuller theological Seminary. Uh, Harold Oingay uh, and, and others were involved in this and it 's pretty much fundamentalist in theology, but it's much more, uh, much less separatist and much less militant than the fundamentalists. And uh, Billy Graham made a decision, a conscious decision, early in his career that he would forsake the narrow sort of exclusionary uh, fundamentalism of his own childhood in favor of a broader, more capacious evangelicalism. And that is what historians often call the the neo-evangelical movement. There are other subgroups. You have the Restorationist Movement, which uh, tries to recover the primitive simplicity of the New Testament. Uh, Church of Christ um, uh, would be an example of that, probably the best example of that. Uh, um, Pepperdine University is part of the Restorationist Movement, for example. Uh, You also have uh, various groups of African-American evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals. Uh, that share much of the same theology, but because of the long and tawdry history of racism in this country, uh, tended to grow along parallel tracks rather than interlocking tracks in in American life. Um, Southern Baptists don't like the term evangelical. Uh, I think it's fair to apply the duck test. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Southern Baptists are evangelicals, especially after the conservative takeover of the denomination in 1979. But, so my point in saying all this is that there is a wide spectrum and variety of evangelicals, but all of them, I think, still fit those three criteria, the Bible, conversion, and evangelism. And it is a huge, albeit internally diverse, movement in American society. I think I'm going to stop there, uh, and then next, when we resume, I'll talk about how evangelicals negotiated the 20th century, the rise of the religious right, and where we stand now. Okay?
0: Beautiful. Okay. Okay.
1: Thank Thank you.